famous playwright, wrote the play Salome regarding John the Baptist and Herod and Herodias, the request that they made for John the Baptist's head. There's a part in that play that is very interesting in light of our subject and our topic this morning about resurrection. If I may, indulge me. Second Nazarene said, there's also the miracle of the daughter of Jairus. First Nazarene, yes, that is sure. No man can gainsay against that. Herodias, these men are mad. They've looked too long at the moon. Command them to be silent. Herod, what is this miracle of the daughter of Jairus? First Nazarene, the daughter of Jairus was dead. He raised her from the dead. Herod, he raises the dead? First Nazarene, yes, sire, he raises the dead. Herod, I do not wish him to do that. I forbid him to do that. I allow no man to raise the dead. This man must be found and told that I forbid him to raise the dead. Where is this man presently? Second Nazarene, he is in every place, sire. And he is difficult to find. I discovered an obscure passage, one I certainly, I'm sure I had read it, but just as we do so often with Scripture, missed it. It's found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. If you want to join me there, I think you'll also find it on our screen. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 62. The next day on the Sabbath, the leading priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate. They told him, sir, we remember that that deceiver once said while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent the disciples from coming and stealing his body. And then, watch, telling everyone he has raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at the first. Pilate replied, take guards, secure it the best you can. So they sealed the tomb and they posted guards to protect it. How interesting that the power brokers, both religious and state, couldn't risk Jesus rising from the dead. There's something about the resurrection that threatens everything in society. There's something about saying and believing and embracing personally, that Jesus is not just a good teacher, a moral teacher, that he lived, that he died, that he did good things, miracles even. You see, Herod was all right with his miracles. Herod was all right with him healing individuals. Herod was not having any problem with what he taught. 
didn't really care. Herod was threatened by his raising the dead. Herod was threatened that this self-proclaimed king might come back to life. And then they'd lose their control. Curiously absent from each of our four gospel accounts of the resurrection is any mention of going to heaven, heaven itself, or the purpose for Christ's resurrection being personal piety and the future Christian hope of leaving the earth. Isn't that interesting? It's not that the Bible doesn't address these things. It's just curious that in the passages, in the four Gospels, dealing with resurrection, heaven is not mentioned. How can we know for certain that the resurrection happened? Well, there are two very incontrovertible truths. Number one, the empty tomb. Now, all through the ages, even in the time of these disciples, there have always been explanations, some alternate way in which it must have happened that they found the tomb empty. Some thought that they drugged Jesus and then he just was taken somewhere else <laughs> and lived out his life. Some thought that when the women ran to the tomb and found it empty and then saw, purportedly, Jesus, that they were seeing James, his brother, somebody that looked like him. There are people who believe that Jesus didn't really die. They say he only appeared to those who knew him or loved him or confessed him. <laughs> And yet, we've got to deal with the fact that the tomb was empty. Now think about this. These Roman guards were experts at death. Experts at flogging. Experts at crucifying somebody. And experts at sealing a tomb. But when the disciples got there, they found the stone rolled away. They went inside and they saw an angel sitting on a bench where they had laid Jesus. And there was his empty cloth that they had wrapped him in. The Jews knew what had happened. They have a very specific process of burying people. In fact, the reason the women were going back the next morning is because commonly, as they would wrap the dead, they would wrap them in spices because it was also common that when the dead were laid in a tomb, they were laid amongst other decaying bodies. And so the spices would help with that situation. They were going to update the wrappings. You know what? It's okay to update what you believe. It's okay to inquire and update and look into what you really believe because God's got your back. He's big enough. 
I haven't grown closer to the Lord by not asking any questions. I've grown closer to the Lord by updating and inquiring and looking into why was the tomb empty? Where'd he go? Secondly, we're told, and this is an incontro, in, let me read it, incon, intro, incontrovertible truth. There were witnesses. First, just a few of the disciples. First, the two ladies. Then the 12 disciples. Then some 70 or 120 others saw him. Then the scripture says that he revealed himself to some 500 different people in the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. They touched him. They ate with him. Interestingly enough, at first, they were all hiding. <laughs> they were all hiding because of the Roman power, the state that they were afraid of. Because they knew that if they confessed the Christ, and they knew if they stood in faith and said, he is risen, that their own lives would be risked. And so they were hiding behind uh, closed doors. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't knock on the door. Let me in, guys. He walks through the wall. Come on now. Doesn't that give you a little bit of excitement this morning? That's the kind of body we're going to have. We're still going to be able to enjoy food. What's your favorite food? My administrative secretary is always after me about my favorite food because I do frequent it. And fortunately, I believe it was the Lord that when he sent us here to this facility, he knew there was going to be a Taco Bell parked right in the corner of this parking lot. He knew that. I am his child. I am his son. And several times a week, there just isn't anything coach that tastes any better. I just, you know, I run through the choices, Arby's, Old Chicago, uh, Subway sandwich. They're all right here. I probably shouldn't be mentioning there now. I don't know. I'm not supposed to do that. Oh, we love them all. Yes, we love them all. But I love Taco Bell more. Personal sightings where people touched, ate with him, were in the room when he walked through the wall. All testify. An empty tomb alone wouldn't have been enough. Personal sightings without the tomb wouldn't have been enough. But an empty tomb and personal sightings, you've got everything you need. to be able to say, he's risen. Could you look at somebody right now? Say it. He's risen. You may not even have everything you believe about God, the Bible, and Jesus worked out, but you can start here. He is risen. 
Whatever this is all about, and just like I said earlier when I, was wel- when I welcomed you this morning about our church ethos, belong, believe, and become. It's okay here at Genesis to belong, to enjoy coming, to even be involved while you're working on what it is you really believe and are experiencing in God's love. We're confident that the power of the Holy Spirit will take care of all of the other stuff. So, N.T. Wright, incredible, famous, prolific author and New Testament Bible scholar, said, and I quote, Messianic movements didn't last past their founder." At least a dozen other movements during the 100-year period on either side of Jesus all failed. If they had wanted to continue, they would have found some relatives or maybe a close associate. But none of them, none of them ever said, our founder is back from the dead. He's alive. We distinctly, as Christ followers, believe the tomb's empty, that he rose, and that we've touched him, we've tasted with him, and today we walk with him. Now, in all due respect to Coach this morning and about heaven, of which... I want to say, I believe I'm going, and I thank God I'm going. It's just that resurrection wasn't about heaven. All my Christian upbringing, the church spoke endlessly of going to heaven as the consummate goal of our faith. It's as if heaven was human destiny. It's the purpose for everything and why Jesus came. And then, you know, it's the end game. And because of Western culture and religious teaching, we've made an assumption regarding a particular interpretation in the Gospels. Here it is. Kingdom of heaven. How often in the Gospels, and especially the Gospel of Matthew, do you read the phrase kingdom of heaven? And we have all assumed that that phrase means heaven. God's talking about heaven there. Kingdom of heaven heaven. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Excuse me? Right now, while I'm preaching here with you, Jesus was saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It doesn't sound like that's a faraway place. It kind of sounds like something Jesus was involved in bringing Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, you could quote it. We learned it. It's one of the first verses we were taught to memorize. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do you share my struggle in trying to get a grasp on how I seek the kingdom of heaven when it's out there, when it's over there, when it's someday, when it's end of life, when it's 
consummation of the age. How do I get my arms around that? Because if I seek it hard enough, I'm going to get blessed. What if the heaven, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus was talking about, not heaven, I believe in heaven. I know heaven's a real place. Heaven is a geographical, real, physical place that we are going to go. It's just that here in the Gospels, when we're talking about simply Jesus, we need to be so careful in our interpretation, so careful in what we call an absolute. And I would submit to you that the kingdom of heaven may not be talking about that place out there, over there, but rather something that Jesus did and brought and accomplished when he was speaking through his life and his death, his burial, and his resurrection. In fact, we find that Matthew's use of the phrase kingdom of heaven actually means the sovereign rule of God on earth as it is in heaven. Go with me somewhere. Do you remember the prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Let's do it. Ready? Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Thy, excuse me, back up. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on as it is. We've been praying that for 2,000 years, waiting to leave to where someday it will be better. Someday it will be glorious. Someday we'll realize and get to take advantage of what Jesus really came to do. Really? Now, I know heaven is a place, and I know that I have an eternal destiny, and I know that the fullness of my salvation yet remains. But boy, I want to get into what Jesus was talking about here when he said, I have come and my preaching represents and my miracles represent the kingdom of God among you, the rule of God here on earth now as it is in heaven. Let me simply ask you a question. If it is any other definition, why were the power brokers so threatened by Jesus and the proclamation that he was king. Why were they so threatened that he might come back to life? If not for a kingdom on this earth that would become so alive and real and full and fantastic that the followers of this king might turn the world upside down, resulting in giving glory to God and the very powers of hell would lose their grasp. Fable? Am I taking liberty with the scripture? I think not. Look, the Bible clearly tells us that Jesus defeated death. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil. 
who had the power. Notice the past tense, who had the power. He doesn't have it anymore. You see, the power that the power brokers of the state and the then religious community had over their followers was convincing them that if they were not obedient, they would die. The state said, we will take your life. The religious community said, you will go to hell. What power is that <laughs> to be able to warn, to be able to get people under your under the power of your thoughts and your commands. That if you do not obey me, you will go to hell. If you do not obey us, we will take your physical life. And so here comes Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. And he takes, he takes the very power that they all had and he destroys it the power of death. Oh, we're not done. First Corinthians chapter 15. It's the great chapter in all of the New Testament where Paul gives his treatise on resurrection. Watch this. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, surely that does mean that eventually, when we enter heaven, we will be completely free and released from this body of death. But dear ones, I'm here to tell you, there is an aspect of the kingdom, the rule and reign of Jesus, that we can walk in here on this earth now, where we can experience the life of Jesus, the presence of God, and we can go into the enemy's territory. And coach, you did this for so many years, and I thank you because I was at those Promise Keeper meetings. I was in the stands and heard the messages that you sponsored and that you yourself brought. And I was at the men's breakfast and heard you speak. And it made such a difference in my life to know that Christianity was something to be lived now. It wasn't just about an Easter hope of resurrection later that someday I'll go to be with the Lord. But now on this planet, in this earth, with my wife, with my children, in my job, in my career, in every aspect of life, Jesus makes a difference. He's king. He's ruler. He broke the power of death. And you and I now live and walk in the kingdom of God. <laughs> oh, come on. Come on, he's risen. Go ahead, tell him. Yeah. Oh, and oh, I, it's like, again, I read some of these scriptures and I say, Holy Spirit, why did you just, you put that in there when I wasn't looking. <laughs> Have you ever done that? You read a scripture a dozen times, but this time when you put that in there when I was not looking, has he ever done that to you, Raleigh? All right, well, here's one. Here's one for you, okay? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light 
through the gospel. The gospel isn't about someday over there. The gospel is about right now. Jesus took the keys of death and hell, destroyed the power of the devil, and what he did, he did for all of humanity. And it's real, and it's alive, and it's working. It heals my body. It gives me grace to live. It gives me faith to go through my day. It makes me more loving to my wife, a better dad to my daughter. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus who now lives in me, and I am not my own. Amplified translation of that same verse says, But now the extraordinary purpose and grace has been fully disclosed and realized by us through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who through his incarnation and earthly ministry abolished death, making it null and void. And he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Quit waiting for heaven. Start walking in the kingdom of heaven now. Now, Coach got three endings this morning. Did you hear that? Coach got, and I'll end with this. He did that three times. So I learned something this morning, coach. I've learned, I've learned again over time. Resurrection is not a description of death. It's something which defeats death and introduces the kingdom of God on earth. The first Easter was the coming of the kingdom of God. Welcome to Jesus's new world. Remember our text, Matthew chapter 27. If that happens, we will be worse off. You can't let that happen. You can't let people believe that he's raised. It will destroy our hold over their lives. <laughs> Next time you're tempted with some sort of earthly material waste of your time, your energy, your love of God, your holiness. You know what you should do? Just look at that thing and say, he's risen. I'm walking in a different kingdom now. <sighs> the Easter stories at the end of the four gospels were not about an end. They were about a new beginning. <laughs> N.T. Wright says, and I quote, what the gospel writers declared is that Jesus is raised, therefore he is Messiah. He is Lord of the earth. He has an assignment for us, and we must get on with it. The kingdom of God, in other words, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is no longer reduced to striving to change my behavior, efforts to appease my conscience, a joyful escapist ending after a sad story, which unfortunately went wrong, but somehow God redeemed. 
No, the kingdom is a revolution of three things. Take them down. Number one, forgiveness. God has forgiven the world. Not just people that pray the prayer or go to church. Isn't that good news for your friends? Isn't that wonderful news for that neighbor? <laughs> Isn't that wonderful news to be able to say your sins are forgiven? And number two, hearts transformed. The Holy Spirit now has been shed abroad. See, somehow Christians tend to think that Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, where the scripture clearly says, Luke, the author of that book, says clearly, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, that in the latter days the Holy Spirit will be poured out. Help me now, you Bible scholars. Help me now. The Holy Spirit will be poured out on all the Here's another misinterpretation. He's only been poured out on the people that pray, on the people that go to church, on the people that, no, the Bible says he's been poured out on all flesh. I'm not saying everybody's born again. I'm saying this will change how you witness. This will change how you evangelize. Because now you come alongside that individual whose lifestyle is repugnant to you who you know is living so far beneath God's blessing and perfect will for their life, and you just come alongside them and you encourage what the Holy Spirit is already doing in their life, starting with, did you know God's forgiven you? Did you know that you're reconciled to the Father through what Jesus has already done? And he loves you. See, you just encourage the work and activity of the Holy Spirit. Number one, forgiveness. Number two, hearts are transformed by him, not me, by him, not my efforts, by him, by me coming alongside and simply being that. And then number three, spirit-baptized ministry that changes the world like what Coach McCartney and Raleigh Washington have done for so many years. Spirit-baptized Ministry, because they believe it's not just about heaven over there, but changing lives here through the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Could we stand, please? 